Welcome home, family. You're tuning in to the Bondcast, where we elevate voices of men of color in education and the things that matter to them. I'm your host, Damon Harris, and I'm a co-founder and co-leader of the Building Our Network of Diversity, or Bond Project. You can find out more about the Bond Project, including our blog, professional learning videos, and podcast at bondeducators.org or at Bond Educators on social media. On this episode, I'm speaking with educator, author, speaker, behavioral specialist, and podcaster, David Spellman. He explains the purpose of a post he wrote on the bondeducators.org blog entitled, Stop Doing or Saying These Things to Students of Color Right Now. David shares about his upbringing and how it influences his teaching. He shares what veteran teachers often get wrong about supporting black and brown students and how schools can leverage cultures, especially those influenced by hip hop, to become optimal places for student learning. As usual, just pull up a chair and we'll drop you right into the middle of our conversation. Welcome to the Bondcast, Dave. Damon, brother Damon, Bond, Bond Nation. I thank y'all for allowing me to share your platform and I, I can't wait to get into this conversation. Yeah. So we ask all of our guests um, or often, what what got you to this point? Like, why did you become an educator? How did you get into this space right now? I mean, it, it goes back to high school. I think everybody's had that educator who really planted that that flag in them that really put that battery in their back to let them know that you can accomplish anything that you put your mind to. And since y'all out in Maryland, I got to shout out the whole DMV. So I had an educator at my high school, Olympic high school, shout out the Trojans, Patrick O'Neill from Bad News. So big up to 757. And he was just that epitome of a black male educator, the kind that every black male needs coming up. He did not take anything from us, but it was like, he was hard on us, but he loved us. And for me, I had a full ride football scholarship and he gave me more work after I had signing day. It wasn't like, oh, you think you signed the paper? You just going to skate senior itis and all that. No, I'm going to give you more expectations because I need you to be that on it as you go to college and as you travel into manhood. So the reason why I'm in education was an educator like that. But then just through my my travels and my journeys, um, tutoring, being, becoming a tutor, then straight out of college, so shout out Virginia Union University, went from the 704 to the 804, and I just really got into it. I knew I wouldn't have a job sitting at a desk for eight to 12 hours a day. I knew I would be interacting with people, trying to bring the best out of them. So psychology was the major with a focus on education because I know how important education was thanks to David Sr. and Janet Russell, my parents. They always instilled that in me. So I knew I was going to be working either in a nonprofit sector or education. And it just so happened I became a behavior specialist and it's afforded me to do all the wonderful things that I've done, move back to Charlotte and really have taken off and done a lot of great things for the students in both Charlotte and Richmond, trying to touch students all over the country and the world with all this good energy to help them you know, become greater than what they think they can be at this point in time. Gotcha. Well, and what is what does a universal behavior specialist do, man? What do you do on a day to day? Man, so it's 
it's a beautiful thing. So I'm, I'm doing a lot of working with teachers to create that environment where students want to come to class because we know there's an issue of chronic absenteeism. I do a lot with social emotional learning, of course. That's, that's the house that I live in. And then culturally responsive instruction because we know there's a lot of white female teachers in the education space, no matter where you are in the country, but a lot of the students don't look like that. A lot of black and brown students, there's some yellow in there as well. So just helping those educators create lessons and you know, bring to their curriculum ways to relate to their students, whether culturally or their interests. So not just saying, you know, I'm the teacher, this is the way we're gonna do it. No, how can you be creative and innovative with your curriculum to get more buy-in from your students and help build that relationship. Yeah, and so you you wrote a lot about the the importance because that your your article was what edu- what educators should stop doing right now for their kids of color. But the thing that really one of the things that really came across in your article was the importance of building those relationships. And so why do you think? And I think about what you said to Patrick O'Neill, who connected with you like that back in the day. Why do you think cultivating relationships with students is so critical? Man, I think. Let me just start right here. Everything that we do in education should be predicated on building relationships. Who wants to engage with somebody that that they do not like, that they do not feel has their best interest at hand? So, of course, it doesn't matter what your culture is, what your ethnicity is. If you're able to connect with your student, I like to call it connecting the dots. It doesn't have to be just on a cultural. It could be sports. It could be music. It could be clothing. Any way you can find it in with your students to let them see that oh, you're just not that normal teacher, then they hold you in a higher regard. Going back to Mr. O'Neill, he presented something to not just me, but all the students in the classroom that was different than most of the educators we've had to that point. So that's why we still think about him, even when conversations with classmates nowadays, yo, have you talked to Mr. O'Neill? Like how, I wonder what Mr. O'Neill's doing because he left that impact on us. So if you build relations, or if you build strong relationships, strong, positive relationships with your students, it'll be much easier for them to buy in and to learn. Because a lot of times we say the kids are not paying attention, they're inattentive, all these all these things that we say, but we never think of what if we built a strong relationship with them? How would that change the environment of the learning? So I think it's go. paramount, honestly. Yeah, it's paramount. They, know, they are paying attention. They know exactly what you're doing and what you're saying. And they don't care if you don't care. Yeah. I'm glad that you said that because energy and, uh, you know, not to call nobody's name out, but I'm going to be working with some teachers per their admin team because they're saying they're so dry in class and a lot of our students move off of energy. So if you're in the classroom reading it all monotone, not giving any energy, your kids cannot feed off of that. And they might be waiting for you to to show a little emotion, show a little color, not be so vanilla. And maybe that will draw them into the learning experience. So, yeah, that I think that's key. Yeah. If you're not invested in the content, if you're not invested in me, then why am I going to invest my time in this? I got a whole I got other things that I could be investing my time with that at least give me short term highs. Yeah. And they and they definitely do. <laughs> if you work in education, you know, attention is the new currency. So how are you gaining the attention of your students? That's a question to everybody listening to it right now. <laughs> And I know a lot of teachers often they they do like identity signaling, right, where they they show like, hey, I'm the teacher and I I believe these things. And they try to 
to say and, and wear clothing certain ways or say certain statements that, that indicate that they have the identity of the authority and of the teacher. But what they don't do, what we don't do as educators often enough is indicate that we see the identity of our children in front of us. Yes. Yeah. Yes, sir. I agree with that. With you. So why do you call like a, the when you when they think about how you blend the the content with the kids cultures and we, I'm careful oftentimes when I talk to folks that culture is not race. Yeah. Right. Say like, that. Say so that. You, you can't be culturally responsive if you don't know the culture and you can't know the culture if you are stuck in a classroom and only know me there. Right. So blend in like that, the, the cultural knowledge with the content and the pedagogy, like you put all those things together with the kids in that classroom, all those little ingredients and you come up with something that made me when you wrote about the teachers being the new alchemists. Right. Like you putting those different ingredients together and coming up with something totally different. Like why? Why did you why did you go there with? I'm a I'm a student. I'm a child of hip hop. So no disrespect to any producer. Oh, you're talking about the alchemist producer. Oh, yes, oh, so okay. I got okay. another blog post coming. It's going to be dedicated fully to teachers or the new alchemists. So if yeah. you rock with the alchemist, shout out ALC, shout out Mob D, rest in peace, prodigy. Mm-hmm. If you really know, and I, I and I often say this in conversations about hip hop, I think Alchemist had the best sample when he did the sample for. We gonna make it, Jaden Styles P. If you knew where he got that sample from, he had to wait like three minutes and some change for that breakdown in that song. It's a song from the mm. 70s. So he he has an album called First Infantry. Um, and in one of the little interludes, it talks about the alchemist, how you t- making, you know, what's oh my goodness, don't let me don't let me mess this up on wax. He's like something about the alchemist, how he turns. He, he takes ordinary metals and turn them into gold. Mm-hmm. So that's how I think about our teachers. You have all these students, whether it doesn't matter what zip code, what their first language is, whatever their social economic status is. For, for this example, say those are ordinary metals. But once they come to the schoolhouse, once they have you as their, their teacher, their educator, you get to turn that ordinary metal into something greater. Like that's what we want when the kids come. We say they don't have certain skills. They don't know certain things. They're deficit in some areas. But us as the teachers, we're supposed to give them that. Once we give them our sauce, once we give them this knowledge, quote unquote, they become gold. So we are alchemists, every educator. And I can't wait till I put some thought into making a blog yeah. post because I need every educator to understand it. I don't care where you are in America. I don't care where you are in the world. When the kids come to you, once you give them that knowledge, they become higher than what they came to you with. So teachers are the alchemists. So yeah, shout out ALC. Yeah. Ordin- turning ordinary metals into gold. That's what we do. I feel you, but, and, and I think about it too, like I'm like thinking of feeding on that analogy, like our kids being like diamonds in the rough, but like their interests when they come into that academic space could be that, could be that metal, right? Where the, the, the teacher has the, to take that interest and that knowledge of content and push it to the next level. I'm with you, man. So, but some teachers will say, and we've been hearing for, I don't know, the last 15 years or so, well, just have a growth mindset, right? Like you just have a growth mindset and it'll be cool. Like, Cause you believe in kids. If you just have a growth mindset, 
But I saw you, you ain't really feeling growth mindset like that. Oh man, yeah. This is this is conversations, you know, me and my colleagues have, you know, around that water cooler. We always want the students to have the growth mindset. You know, when they have challenges, you know, just change your thinking, you know, don't give up. But at the same time, the instructors are incapable of having a growth mindset because a lot of times we want the kids to change, but us as the educators, we keep that same mindset. Whether we've been in the game 10, 15, 20 years, or we, we get influenced by the wrong seed, like the wrong seed gets planted in the educator. And now their, their whole mindset, their whole trajectory about their students has changed. So if we're gonna say the students need to have a growth mindset, it has to be an integrated experience because behavior influences behavior. If we want the students to be able to change their thinking, we as the educators must change our thinking about our students. And in turn, if we can do that, we'll change up some of our teaching practices. Got you. I say that Crisis Prevention Institute made me think about Oh, yes, that. sir. Yeah, I'm a trainer. <laughs> CPI, shout out. Oh, that's what's up. That's what's up. Yeah, I was, um, yeah, we we have you in that over here too, man, for certain for certain things. Hey, so the um when I, I think about what you wrote and how you have to believe in kids, you have to build relationships, you have to think of yourself as that alchemist who can take this group of kids. And 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 synergistically make make it more than the sum of its parts. Your your room, your time with them. But then we we have the young folks who come, or the new teachers, maybe not young te- folks, the new teachers who come into the profession. Oftentimes they come in really idealistic, like, hey, I can do all those things because somebody did it for me. But then you have the vets sometimes who are a little jaded, man. And you wrote about that. You know, calling them uh, roster wardens. Mm. You know, so we'll, we'll tell us a little bit more about what you what you were talking about in that sense. Man, you know, once once you reach a certain level of education, your your conversation or interaction with staff changes. So in my position, I'm in these meetings where the the PLC or the MTSS team is talking about students, and then just hearing the way they talk about our young people, it 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 makes me so frustrated at times because a lot of times. They look like the little brown and black students. And you have, like you said, that veteran teacher who's confessing all the sins of a student because stuff didn't go right. Not to think about, okay, maybe I was the issue. Maybe my old pedagogy doesn't work for these generation of kids. So they're out here just spewing all this negativity about young people who are not yet fully, fully done in their maturity, in their growth. And like I talked about in the article, when you do have those those new teachers are you no know, bright eyed, bushy tails that they they feel like they can save the world. But then that veteran teacher plants that negative seed in them. So now their whole perspective has changed about a few students because of something they've heard, not giving the student that chance. And like I talked about in the article, we as individuals, we as people mature at different times, like we all play the drums at a different beat. So, yes, because that student wasn't their best selves for you in that moment in second grade, now they're in fourth grade and you're still spewing that, that same rhetoric. Well, you know, in second grade, they had, you know, X amount of referrals. They was just terrible talking back, you know, being disrespectful, being defiant. And you don't mess up this new teacher's perspective of that student, not knowing that they've made growth. So I, I really, that it disheartens me because we need to celebrate the growth regardless of how small it is. It's still growth. Amen to that, brother. Amen to that. And I imagine that, like you, you were 
you wrote about how the systems that we use in schools, like just the whole, our whole educational institution can be traumatic for kids. And a lot of schools are thinking they're, they are employing trauma-informed practices, right? Or trauma-sensitive classrooms when it could be that we are perpetrating the trauma on some oh, yeah. of these children on a regular basis. It reminds me of, um, I think it was Sharif Elmeki at the Bond Academy said, when folks, maybe it was at the Bond Academy, he said, but it was the, the pandemic. And they said, oh, the kids, they're, they, they need to get back in class because they are, you know, this is traumatic having them be home and not be in, in schools in person. And Sharif said, I think it was Sharif, he said, what makes you think that being in school wasn't traumatic for them pre-pandemic? Yeah. You know? So, like, why do you, why do you think, like, our current systems contribute to that? those traumatic experiences. Man, I don't I don't know how it is where you're at, but over here in this school district, which will not be named, but if you Google my name, you'll know, you'll know <laughs> what's up. It's like a rush to push a black and brown student through the, the EC process to, to put them in EC service, to give them the IEPs, to give them just what they would call support, but that's traumatic in itself. You're saying, I am not general ed. You're saying I am not to say I'm special in a positive way, but I require more support. Putting a student and a family in that, and I've seen students getting to push through as early as kindergarten and first grade. Those kids have the most energy. There's nothing wrong with their attention. They're being a, a five, six, seven year old. You need to exercise more patience with a student that young, but when you put a family through that, when you mark them, when you label them, that is traumatic in itself. Saying, hey, mom, hey, grandma, hey, dad, we need you to come to this extra meeting because your son or daughter is not meeting the, the expectation, this box that we want to put them in. And that's essentially what we're saying to these families. And then I've been in those meetings also. You got five or six, seven individuals from the educational field right there. They've already made a decision for this family without their input. We're just waiting for you to come and sign off, you know, put your John Hancock on his paper. But mm -hmm. then we don't listen to the parent. They might have some some really unique needs that, hey, this is what might work for my child. But nope, because we've got these advanced degrees. We've been in education for X amount of years. We already know what's good for your child. We're not we. And, and in my district, we talk about personalized learning. <laughs> It's lip service. It's lip service because, nope, if you don't fit this box, we're throwing you in the EC. We're throwing you in the special programs. Well, you might have to go to the alternative school because we want enforced compliance. We want students that sit there, shut up, and do the work without expressing any kind of individuality. So that, when you when you tell somebody they can't be themselves authentically, that is traumatic. <laughs> and it sounds like another system that starts with an S that I'm not going to put on wax from way back when. You got to fit this or, you know what? the worst thing could happen to you. And I digress. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. So like where this isn't though, like when I, I think some people will read what you wrote and hear, you know, some of our conversation and think we're just talking to, to white educators, you know, particularly white female educators. Cause that, um, that, that demographic dominates the teaching core, but that's not who you just, that's not who you mean. Not only who yeah. you mean. Right. I, I made four points in that article and only one was addressing that because I've heard it the most from white females. But even myself, 
I have to question some of the things that I've done in education. And it's like, I have been contributing to this machine of pulling down the youth that looks like me because a lot of times they will get a, a black man to be that disciplinarian, to be that enforcer. We need you to handle the rest of them that look like you. So there's been times where I feel like I've contributed to, I'm not gonna say the total downfall of some of the, the youth that look like me, but when I have to comply or I have to do certain things with the school, I, I feel like like when I take hop in the shower, I'm like, man, I gotta get this off of me because it's not something I would really do from my own, like my own mindset, but it's like, okay, we're in this educational system and these are the processes and procedures and the protocols. And by me complying with that, I feel like I'm being a detriment sometimes to, to my own youth. And it's, it's, it's like a, a dichotomy that a lot of, I'm sure black men have because young black boys, young brown boys are the ones getting the most, referrals, they're the ones getting suspended at a disproportionate rate. And at times, you know, we might be signing off on those suspensions. We may be contributing to them getting sent home. And it's like, damn, how can we do better for our youth? Because we don't, we definitely don't want to send them on that prison pipeline. The prison was it school to prison pipeline. We don't want to put them on that path. But sometimes by us just complying with the educational system, we're kind of contributing to that. And that's, it's a tough feeling. It's a tough pill to swallow, honestly. Yeah, we cogs in the machine sometimes. So we, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that, man. I'm, I am definitely complicit, you know, in, in some of this. Uh, trying, man, like, you know, we all, we all trying to, you know, know better and do better, but it, it's tough. And so that's why I think when, when we speak um, in the different places where we speak or when we write certain things across different platforms, that we are not speaking to folks who we, things that we wouldn't, we are holding ourselves accountable 100%. for the same things. No? 100%. Yeah. But I think about, oh, and you tuned in to the Bondcast. We are talking with author, speaker, writer, behavioral specialist, David Spellman. Um, and we're speaking the most about his new article in on the Bond blog that was things educators should stop doing the, the children of color right now. Um, so one of the things you talked about was that the the um, educators need to find ways to connect with kids outside of the instructional context. Like, what are some ways that you think that educators can connect with kids like outside of school or maybe outside of some extracurricular fashion? Yeah, I mean, that it's an easy end, but then it, it goes to the question of any educator. And like you just prefaced, this is we're not speaking specifically only to white educators. This is for any educators. It doesn't matter what you your gender identity. It don't matter what you claim. If you work in education, if you're dealing with the youth, these are ways to connect with students easy as far as if students are in athletics or if they're in any kind of after school club. And I would even say, create a club based on your students' interests. And I'm gonna just give you a perfect example. One school down here, of course, is a high school. Kids love to hop on a TikTok. They wanna do the dance challenges. That makes them feel good. That's what the culture's about. So this teacher created a TikTok dance after school club. So they're yeah. all doing the dances, but then there's a study hall component tied to it because maybe the kids that are doing the most dancing, they're the best dancer, they might not have the highest grade. So how can I satisfy both 
all of who you are holistically. Yeah, I, I love that you dance, you have skill. Let me embrace that. But at the same time, I need you to be stronger academically. So stuff like that. If they play athletics, that's easy. You get into the games free. Most most school districts, if your students are playing whatever sport, go to the game. Let them know that you've seen them. Track their stats like, yo, Damon, I seen you at the game on Friday. You had two touchdowns, one pass breakup. Keep doing your thing. You might be the only adult in their life that notices those things. Just imagine how, let's say that student has been, you know, a problem child, but you work on ways to break down that wall, break down that barrier by opportunities like that. That student will do anything for you. And once you have that student kind of in pocket, they're not going to let anybody else, no other student, disrespect you as well. Because I've seen it happen multiple times. Oh, now you can act crazy in that teacher's classroom, but not miss. Mr. Harris, you know, Mr. Spellman, nah, we ain't going, we ain't going to do that over there because you build that relationship. And a lot of times these kids don't have a lot of positive adult interactions, especially if you're working in the inner city. Yeah, they have parents, they have people in their neighborhood, but they might not be giving the best example of how they should operate in this world. So when they come to the school and they see you, like for me, I, and it's, it's strategic and it's intentional. I'm always shirt and tie in the school, even on Fridays. Like, oh, there's no there's no casual Friday for spell. There's not because when I'm out in this world, I represent every black man. So when I when I see when the boys see me, yeah, they might have people in their neighborhood dressing how they dress and not to say I don't dress like that on my downtime. But when I'm at work, when I'm at the office, when I'm clocked in, I need these young boys to see me and be a mirror like, oh, man, you can still be flying a shirt and tie. You can still be flying your hard bottoms. And I tell them a lot of times for the, of course, you know, the young men love to get the attention of young women. I said, if you dress up once a week, watch how the females, they, they'll be attracted to your dress. They'll give you a compliment. And I'm like, you love getting attention from, from the girls, right? They'd be like, yeah, wear shirt inside, hard bottom, Stacey Adams, whatever you have you. They'd be like, oh, look at you. You looking nice today. And that boosts up your self-confidence. But there, there's so many ways. And I, and I, give, I gave the the participants at my uh, speech at the conference in St. Louis this past week, an acronym, OTB, Opportunities to Build. Us as educators really have to, to tap in and find those opportunities to build. Like I said, going to their extracurricular activities, polling your students, creating that club. If you see your kids' interest, okay, we can have an afternoon club about Madden or 2K. Yeah, we'll play the Madden the 2K, whatever. But we're going to have this academic component as well because I want to boost you up academically also. But this is one I use in, in the article. If you're in the inner city, it doesn't even matter if you're in the inner city. Ask your students, where did they go to shop? Where do they spend their time outside of school? If it's if it's that food line, if it's that hair seat, if it's that Kroger's around the way, maybe it's a little bit, you know, 15, 20 minutes outside your little radius. You go to that Kroger one time a month. You might catch your students just being in their natural environment and that changes their perspective of you. That's an opportunity to build. So we gotta be creative. Like I understand education is so rigid with the curriculum and you know standardized testing, but you have to find those ways to build with your students in an innovative and creative way because that will really determine if you have a strong working relationship with your students. And opportunities to build, man, like you have opportunities to build a relationship. You have opportunities to build your knowledge of their cultures. You have opportunities to build their academic sense, you know, academic identities. Yeah. So that that, that works on multiple levels. And I got a shout out to uh, Desmond McCall, the soon to be Dr. Desmond McCall. 
His school, his elementary school, he starts uh, Dapper Fridays, where you know the kids all the, the kids all get dressed up on Fridays to to look good and take photos of each other and stuff like that. And I, I tell the kids um, that I wear I wear a jacket and tie because there was and I use this often. There's a, a gentleman Jay Jay Street who was the executive director of the community center where I grew up, and he was. One of the only, the only guy I knew in my neighborhood who wore a tie every day when he wasn't going to church, right? And it it made me feel important because he dressed like it was important, right? When to come to to come to work with me, and so that's what I tell my my children, my students. They say, "Hey, why are you? Why do you wear ties?" I said, "Because it's important. Working with you is important to me, and I wear ties and jackets to important events." Yeah, that's 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 key that you said it because a lot of my students like you. I bet you don't even have regular clothes. So when they see me in the community, they're like amazed that I got you know J's on, sneakers on, ripped jeans. They're like, oh my god, I didn't think you even <laughs> own that. But it's like I, I tell them, when do you dress up? They're like, okay, church. I said the church is important to you. They say, yeah. Or if I'm going to a wedding or a funeral, I'm like, those are all important events. You want to look the part. I said every day you want to look the part. Because you never know who's willing to give you an opportunity. You never know who's willing to give you an opportunity. Now, if you dress, you know, not to say that you can't get one dressed in jeans and a jersey, but if you are the only person shirt and tie dressed to the nines, guess where all the focus is going on? Mm-hmm. And like, what about, because I, I think about how folks, like we said, you can't be culturally relevant if you don't know the culture. And you can't know the culture if you are thinking that you just need to see it in the by reading the kids' demographics, right? Nigerian is not a culture; it's a country; it's a nationality, right? Like you know, the the same with a bunch of different things. We had some um, some folks in my in my community because my community is about sixty five percent first second generation um, kids, maybe third who are from Central America. And then about 20, 20 to 25 in a given year percent are kids, first or second generation, maybe third, from Northeast Africa, in particular Ethiopia and Eritrea. Um, but there's some, some pushback recently because my families from Central America, they come in and say, hey, you got to choose a race. And they say, wait, I want to choose Hispanic. I said, why is that not a choice? Why is that over here in, a, in this other category? And it's because... Hispanic is an ethnicity, right? It's not a race. Race isn't really real. Like it, it was just created to create a hierarchy, you yeah. know? But so when I say that, that, like people get confused about what they mean, what we mean by culture. And it's, 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 it's a way of being, knowing and doing, right? From a, a certain groups of folks. But in, in country, nationality and ethnicity and race may have some influences, you know, they may be a couple of indicators that may you may be able to string together a couple of other things. But that's really not what it is, man. And you don't you can't know if you don't get out there. Yeah. And one of the things that people do when they get out there, man, is they might be afraid to bump into the grownups. As much as they are afraid of bumping into the kids. And what do you think about that? Like people connecting with parents and that that better engagement with parents. Man, that's, it's so great that you're asking me this because I had so many questions during my, my speech at the conference about parent engagement. They're like, yeah, this sounds amazing. And I feel like this will work good with the kids, but it's they wanted to go a little deeper. 
And I and I asked them, I asked them to raise their hand. I said, how many people call parents when it's something positive? No hand was raised. Yeah, we'll call them when they got a referral. We'll definitely call them for, time for that. Yeah, we, we'll call them for that. And once you've created that pattern, if I see that number from the school, I already know what time it is. So I, I gave them this little nugget positive phone call Friday. And I know this is much easier for the primary school teachers, but five kids a Friday, I'm calling to big them up on whatever it is. If they did 10 things wrong, one thing right, if that child is on that Friday, I'm going to harp on that one thing they did right because that changes the the relationship with you and that parent is like, hey, I'm just calling this Mr. Spellman. Oh, is he suspended? No, nah, he's not suspended. I wanted to tell you something positive. They're going to be like, huh? They're going to be stunned. But you're, you're putting that equity in it. And I always reference it. And I'm sure I know that it's big for um, relationships with your, with your spouse, your significant other. But that emotional bank deposit for our students and our families, we're always making withdrawals. That's why when we call them, we're past red. Why are you calling me? Oh, you, need, you know, they, we get that kind of interaction because we've never put any deposits in. And if they folks of color and if they poor. They, they already had this relationship with school when they were in school. And that and I'm glad you said that because that spoke to the, the earlier point, the traumatic experiences. Yeah, stuff in their life might be traumatic, but a lot of trauma happens at the schoolhouse as well. And if I'm a parent who I wasn't the best child, I didn't have that in, enforced compliance. I thought outside the box. I was always getting in trouble. I was always getting sent to alternative schools. Now my offspring is going to pretty much have that same story because you do not cater to kids that are that don't fit that mold. Every kid is not just going to sit there, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, do their work and even have that that requisite knowledge because kids come to us the best way they can. If I didn't, if I couldn't afford to put them in a pre-K program, if I didn't have books around the house for my child to develop those skills early on, they may be coming to you on zero, no skills. Yeah. We have to teach them. So yeah, that that's, that's real spill that our families are experiencing a lot of trauma from the schoolhouse, but just like we would build with the students, you build with the parents, you have to find a common interest. You have to find a way to connect the dots. So for a lot of my Latino families, I, and I often tell them because I, I grew, I, bo- I was born in London, but grew up, grew up around the world. But I always tell people I grew up Latino. No matter where I was at, there was a lot of Spanish people from me from different countries. And people think there's Mexico and it's Puerto Rico. Mm. There's like 20 to 30 different unique cultures, different unique countries. So most countries in Latin America have their own way of saying hello. Most people think, okay, pasa, that's that's universal. But Dominicans say, que lo que. Um, Cubans say, que bola. You know, people from Honduras say, que pelo maje. Like there's a, a unique way to say it in every country. And I'm sure it's like that for the African countries, but of course for the European countries. So if I'm a teacher and I know I have a bunch of Dominicans in my class, I'm going to say, Manito, que lo que? They're going to look at me like, what? Like, how do you know about my culture? But after you say that, boom, that barrier has went down. Same thing with the parents. If you let them know, like a lot of my my, my families that are Latino, if I find out where they're from, so I have a Cuban, Cuban mother, Cuban grandmother. I'm like, okay, you know, maybe your son had to get a suspension or whatever the case may be, but next time you come, 
I need some imperial rice, some uh, arroz imperial. It's a special, unique Cuban dish. They're like, oh, you know about imperial rice? I'm like, yeah, I grew up with some Cubans. Boom, barriers have went down. Even though we met on a negative term, I'm still finding ways to connect. And that's the thing, when the kids are down, why there's no need to continue to beat them down. They got the suspension, they got the referral. You better be working on putting some deposits in there because you've just took a big withdrew out. So how are you gonna build in that moment of need for that student? Yeah, mom, dad, whoever, grandma, cousin, uncle, whoever's on that card to, to come get them. Yeah, they got suspended, but let me build with you while you're here. You listen to the Bondcast. We are talking to author, speaker, behavior specialist, David Spellman. And he is also the author of Just Like Music, Social Emotional Learning Inspired by Hip Hop. Get it wherever you get your books. Yes. And how, so tell me, let's talk a little bit about that. Like what, what inspired you to write the book? I'm assuming that hip hop allowed you to do something, to do some connection with your students. A hundred percent. So big on social emotional learning. And I often tell educators, social emotional learning is not only for those kids, because when I when I had this conversation, I, I tell them in jest, I'm like, listen, I got kids from affluent neighborhoods who will try to kill themselves if they get a C on a on a grade. Then I got kids from the hood that will try to kill you if you call them a B. So social emotional learning skills are good for everybody. It's not just for certain students. Everybody could benefit from goal setting. Everybody can benefit from having better regulation skills. And when I'm, when I'm saying everybody, I'm not talking about every student, everybody, every educator, because there's times where you can see where we're deficit in social emotional learning because of the way we act and react to our students. So with that being the case, like I said earlier, I'm a student of hip hop. And I'm always, and I think I get this from my mother. I'm always trying to find the light in a situation. So of course, and I, I'll give you the perfect example. The first chapter in my book, every chapter is based off of a city and the city is based off of the artist who said the lyric. So the first chapter in my book is Philadelphia. Meek Mill, shout out, cause I, I used to live in Philly. So shout out 215, shout out to 267, Broad Street Bully in it. That the song and when people hear this, this is the song I use. They're like, how did you make this educational dreams and nightmare? If I played this song, the beginning line, you know, I used to pray for times like this to rhyme like this. So I had to grind like that to shine like this. I only use that part of the lyric and I make a social emotional learning out of it. So I compare that line to another book, Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. So in Habit 2, he said all things are created twice. So you have the first creation. That's the vision. So I, I go back into the lyric. When you pray for something, you're asking for things that you do not have in this moment. That's your dreams. That's your goal. That's the thing that you want to do. That's the first creation. So the second creation is the physical manifestation. That's you being on your grind. That's the work. So when Meek said, I had to grind like that to shine like this, he got to the point in that in his life because he put in the work, those long nights, waking up early, doing what he had to do, being in the studio for X amount of hours, all of that work in turn brought his dreams to fruition. So when I tell people how I made that comparison, they're like, Meek Mill, Stephen Covey, I'm like, this is what we do. This is the creativity that you can bring to your curriculum. This is how you make it culturally, culturally relevant. So that's just the chapter, but then there's a whole lesson plan. So we talk about goal setting. We create a vision board. 
And then I tell the kids, I need you to do goals for your academic side and your personal side. I'm like, cause it's holistic. I don't want every goal to be academic because that's unrealistic. So give me some personal goals that you have too. But then for the, that would be the guided practice. Then for the independent practice, I need a detailed plan for one academic goal, one personal goal. So that's that's how the book is. It's 18 chapters. So pretty much it's a whole semester's worth of content. I take a piece of a lyric, tied into social emotional learning, and then there's even ELA standards embedded because anytime you read something, and I like to tell this because they, they look at me and think, oh, you know, you just know behaviors. No, I, I work with curriculum specialists. Anytime you read a literary or informational text, it doesn't matter what strand, what from K to 12, the first question is, what is the theme? So when you read that chapter, my first question is always, what is the theme of Philadelphia? What did you receive from that chapter? So we have embedded ELA, social emotional learning, and hip hop in one curriculum. And that's why a lot of people have been giving me the nod. I've been having some great opportunities. And it's like, we never thought to do it like that. Well, why not? We, you have the autonomy to be creative. I understand mm-hmm. you have to satisfy those those um, standards, but you can you can find innovative ways to, to touch on a standard. And I'll give you another example. If we're working on simple multiplication, yeah, Johnny has you know five boxes with twelve apples in it. Yeah, that's cool. That's that's simple multiplication. But imagine, okay, what artists do y'all like? Are y'all there in the DMV? Y'all like Wale? Cool. How much does the stream, how much is the stream worth? Some cents on a dollar. So let's do some simple multiplication. If Wale had 50,000 streams, how much money is he taking home? If he had 100,000 streams, how much is he taking home? That's simple, simple multiplication, but now we've turned it and made it culturally relevant. And another thing that I tell with the teachers is like, if, if you're my student in the classroom, yeah, you have your curriculum that has those generic names. You know, Johnny has five baskets of apple with 12 in each. Well, Damon has five baskets of apple. You heard Damon, that, oh, that's my name. Now the kids are paying attention because you've big them up. Those are simple tweaks to make it culturally responsive. And that's not even, and we, like we talked about, culture's not a race. We're talking about your classroom culture. If I use the names of the students in my classroom, I'm building my classroom culture because now they can see themselves in the lesson. Mm-hmm. It's just so many different ways. Like it's, we could talk all night about it. We could talk all night. So do you do you do these not just the the conference presentations, but do you work with groups of kids in different districts using using your book as the anchor? Yeah. Yeah, and right now I've, I've worked with a lot of nonprofits and I'm working with groups of students because when I presented to the admin team, they're like, you know what? We have this SEL platform, this program, but we really want to do this. And I'm not here to take over anybody's SEL program, but this could supplement it because it's culturally responsive. And it may get your students to buy in more than, and I'm not going to call out any names, but you you can easily Google and see what's out there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and I'm, I'm currently working on getting with a professor so we can get that hard data. We like trying to scale up, yeah. trying to scale up. Yeah. So how do people find you and, and oh, get man. in touch? On the LinkedIn, you can find me at David Spellman on IG. I, like I said, I grew up Latino. So it looks like Mr. Jappy, but it's Mr. Happy. So M-R-J-A-P-P-I on Instagram. Um, the email is positivearcher at gmail.com. And you can also go to the website positivearchersolutions.com. And, you know, I got I to gotta say the story. People always ask me, why did you name it Positive Archer Solutions? 
I'm about positivity. I thank my parents for giving me that light. That's what, that's what I reflect out to the world. But I'm a Sagittarius. So if you know anything about your signs, that's the archer. So positive archer. I'm dealing with a lot of issues in education. I got the solution. So positive archer solutions is simple. It's simple. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, my head, the movie I was telling myself was, yeah, you you know, you got the, the bow and arrow, man. You you looking at the positive stuff. You know, you hitting yeah. people with that positive, like cute. You got that energy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no doubt. Well, hey, family, you've been listening to the Bondcast, where we elevate the perspectives of male educators of color and things that matter to them. We just talked with David Spellman, a universal behavior specialist, author and speaker, writer of Just Like Music, Social Emotional Learning Inspired by Hip Hop. And also recently a blog on the Bond website that is called Things, uh, I forgot what it was called exactly, Things We Should Stop Doing, Educators Should Stop Doing Right Now, Kids of Color. Dave, anything you want to, what do you got going on next, man? Where you where you going here as we as we start to wind down and close out? Man, I a big up to the National Alternative Education Association. They had me speak last week. Um, that was a great opportunity, and I'm looking to expand on that. Made some contacts in Maryland, some contacts in California, of course, just everywhere across the country, and just trying to grow this thing. Um, of course, doing my day to day here in, in Charlotte helping out all the youth them out here. And I'm just going to continue to build. Like I love opportunities like this where educators can talk to educators outside of their, their little bubble. People think that, oh, I can't talk to anybody that's outside of my school district. Why is that the, the general consensus? What you have in your school district is cool, but there's so much knowledge. There's so many people doing great things across the country. Why not see if you can tap in? Because you never know where you can add value or somebody can add value to you. So to every educator, I say this in every chapter of my book, you have greatness inside of you. That's not just for the children. That's for anybody that's still upright breathing. Every day that you wake up, I need you to know that you have greatness inside of you. But the, the challenge is, it's on, to, it's on you to cultivate it. You can't just be playing low, playing yourself down, expect your greatness to show. You have to challenge yourself. You have to cultivate it. Like Meek said, you got to put that grind in. You know, anything worth having is going to take work. So you have it in you, educators. We got this and we have to have this, especially the educators that look like us, because we got a whole generation of students depending on how we move in the schools and how we build them up. Yeah, this current generation and this generation's kids depend on what we do right now with these kids we have in front of us. We appreciate your time, David. This was this was awesome for me, man. I hope it was awesome for for you. I'm sure it's going to be awesome for our audience. Um, you've been listening to the Bondcast, where we elevate the perspectives of male educators of color and the things that matter to them. We hope you or we've been talking to David Spellmond, the author, speaker, behavior specialist in Charlotte, out of Charlotte, North Carolina, from London, but raised everywhere. Um, and we, you could tell by the, the background knowledge that David has, you know, from jazz from the 60s to hip hop here, you know, the different dialects that he knows. I'm smarter just from sitting around with you, man, for this past hour. I appreciate so awesome. it. I appreciate it. You know, people that know me the closest, they know the nickname is world famous and I embody that. I embody that. 
That's what's up. That's what's up. Uh, and, and family, we hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Bondcast. We'll save a chair for you, um, and we'll be seeing you soon. Y'all be safe. Thank you for joining this episode of the Bondcast. We hope you enjoyed the conversation with educator, author, behavior specialist, and podcaster David Spellman as we discussed the article he wrote on the bondeducators.org blog entitled, Stop Doing or Saying These Things to Students of Color Right Now. You can find out more about the Bond Project, including our blog, professional learning videos, and podcast at bondeducators.org online or at Bond Educators on social media. Be on the lookout for our next episode, which is coming really soon. We hope you get a chance to come through and we'll definitely leave a seat for you. For now, peace and be safe.